All right. Well, we are、um, in the midst of this liturgical section, for lack of a better descriptor, that began in chapter eight with Ezra leading the law. Of course, you have various priests explicating that law, and、um, then you have, of course, the people begin by hearing the law and they're weeping. All the Levites are saying, "Wait, no! This isn't the time for weeping. This is the time for rejoicing."、Uh, weeping is to come later. <laughs> rejoicing in who God is, what He's done for us, and letting that be the emphasis, letting that be the foundation of the the spiritual rebirth here of Jerusalem. And then, of course, taking opportunity to mourn the long heritage of human sin that led up into this point, to where it was finally necessary for God, who is so good, so innocent,、um, to finally come to His own wit's end—hard to imagine—but to finally be so frustrated and fed up with generation after generation of sin and violation of His. His covenant that he finally acquiesces and does that which is alien to him, and becomes angry, and、uh, dismisses the people into、um, Babylon for the captivity. Just a few short. I mean, again, when you compare this as a centuries-long process of people sinning against him, the punishment is just a few short decades. It's very short, and he's back and establishing Jerusalem. So what we have in chapter nine is this second half. No longer the rejoicing in who the Lord is and what He's done, and the fact that He's brought them back and reestablished Jerusalem, reestablished His temple, all of this glory and praise—that's to be the foundation, God's works. And then、um, followed by a people's recognition of their sin and what led to this. And you know, then again, in hindsight, it's going to be all of their sin within the context of God's goodness, graciousness, and the fact that He's restored them and rebuilt Jerusalem. It's it's analogous to how we confess our sins in divine service. You don't say, "Most just, most just and impartial God, I plead guilty of all of the sins by which I deserve immediate execution." You know, we we pray rather、um, and, and confess rather、um, to、uh, God, our Father, to our merciful Father. And so, when we confess our sins, we're confessing our sins to one who has already shown Himself to be. Merciful and trustworthy. We don't have to plead the fifth. We don't have to hide things. We don't have to omit things. God isn't out there to get us. He is our merciful Father, and that is the one to whom we are confessing when we confess our sins.、Um, so very important for us to just, you know, imbibe that, embody that、um, liturgical reality in, into our own souls, into our own piety, and our own understanding of God. And you see that reflected here in the text as well. Begins with who God is, His graciousness, His mercy, and then within that safe harbor, there is room to to be accurate with our sins and confess our sins, knowing we're confessing them to Him who is merciful. Okay, so that's that's the whole point. So chapter nine, the people confess their sins, and of course, there's this. They're reading the law of Moses. We know how that begins. Genesis, in the beginning, God made, and so forth, and so that's literally where the confession of sin starts. With an acknowledgement of who God is, chapter nine, verse six. If you recall, he goes about,、um, you know, leading the people here.、Um, recollection of、uh, God making the heavens and the earth, all the host, all that is within them. By verse seven, we've introduced Abraham. I mean, it's almost like you're just going piece by piece through 
Genesis. Okay. Um, then verse 9, the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. Red Sea, the signs and wonders that lead to the Exodus. Um, this all goes on. Um, you see the pillar of cloud and fire rehearsed in verse 12. Mount Sinai and the first covenant in verse 13. So creation, Abraham, Exodus, Moses, and the Sinaitic covenant um, all being recounted here. Um, special recollection on in verse 15 of the bread from heaven and the water from the rock. Very interesting. Um, you know, there's two different ways to take this, and I find it fascinating. I'm not really sure I want to exclude either one, even though, even though maybe technically they're mutually exclusive. I don't care. I want my cake and eat it too. And in theology, that's actually, I think, uh, possible <laughs> in some ways. So here's, here's interesting. Look at verse 15. I didn't have opportunity to bring this point up last week. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. I think there's, uh, there's precedent for finding here um, in both of these. Um, language of the Lord's Supper, bread from heaven, of course. Christ being the true bread that comes down from heaven. Um, so a, a type of the Eucharist, a type of the bread that is his body. And then water out of the rock. Of course, if that rock is Christ, and um, you know, you get this, you get this really kind of wild imagery. I think where you've got the rock, and you've got Moses, um, you know, striking the rock. Okay, and I don't know why, but I always kind of picture in my mind like, like him whapping the rock. Okay, I, I, maybe so, maybe so. But another way to strike the rock is to take your staff and. Do one of these, right? Where you're hitting it with the butt of the, of the rod and you're striking the rock. Now, interesting because you've got the rock, you've got Moses, the representative of the law, striking the rock and from the side of the rock, as it were, what comes out? Water. Yeah. Remind you of anything? <laughs> yeah. Our Lord Jesus struck by the spear in the side and out comes water and blood. Okay, so I think there's I think there's room and precedent here to find then the drinking aspect and indeed look at look at the first half of verse fifteen, the bread from heaven is for hunger and the water from the rock is for thirst. So that which is given to us in the body of Christ, that which flows to us from Christ, is His blood to quench our thirst. Um, these are these are types and foreshadows of the Eucharist. Um, now, how else might we see these? And there is a good argument to be made for this way, too, of seeing things. And so I'll just point it out. That the bread from heaven, in and of itself, is fitting for the Lord's Supper. How so? When Jesus, in John chapter 6, discourses on the bread from heaven, that your fathers ate in the wilderness and died, I am the bread from heaven, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. So Jesus finds within this image sufficiency for the entirety of the Eucharist. The bread from heaven is the entirety of the Eucharist. How might then we perceive this water from the rock? Uh, we don't have to abandon the imagery 
of the striking of the rock and the water and the water coming out of the side, but we might then perceive this to be more of a baptismal image, where the water is pouring out abundantly. And you can think of the water being struck from the rock. Where does that where does that water go? It goes everywhere, including into the mouth, but everywhere. Okay, and so too the baptismal flood. The baptismal flood of God's grace is a, is a gracious water that goes everywhere. It covers all of us, but in a sense, it's also even drink, drank in, drank in. It's, it's external, it's internal, it's the flood of, of forgiveness of sins, it's the flood of new life and new birth. And so another way to perceive this verse and this kind of Old Testament typology is to view the water from the rock as more of a baptismal image, you see. Um, so then, then you would have bread from heaven as being the Eucharistic image, water from the rock as being a baptismal image. All right, well, either way you go with these, I don't really care. I think there's biblical precedent to kind of go either way, and we're really in, we're really kind of in, in what theology would call a term, I don't know how many of you have heard this, but mystagogy. Okay? And this is the idea of taking the Old Testament texts and typology and seeing in them the, the root and source of the Christian sacraments, and then taking our understanding of the Christian sacraments and having that be fleshed out and informed by what preceded it in the type of the Old Testament scriptures. So by this mode and method, we come to understand the gifts that our Lord has given us uh, in the Eucharist, in Holy Baptism, more thoroughly and in a more picturesque way. You know, you can go to the you can go to the Lord's Supper and have in your mind the imagery of the Garden of Eden, where you're going to uh, you're going up to our chancel, and from the tree of death, <laughs> His cross, which is now the tree of life, you're eating the fruit, which is His body and blood given and shed for your forgiveness. You're partaking of the tree of life. You can go to our sanctuary and have that mindset um, in place and be visiting the new Eden. You can uh, go to the chancel um, with, with the Exodus in mind and with the Passover supper in mind. And there you are in the Passover with the angel of death passing over with the lamb, the roasted lamb being eaten, his blood not put on the lintels of the doorpost, but the doorway of your body and... Um, being, being one with God's people and safe in the shadow of his wings. Um, so you can go to the Eucharist and be at Passover. <laughs> you can go to the Eucharist and be with Jesus in the upper room with his disciples and imagine and be thinking in those terms and what he said and what he did um, in, the, in the washing of their feet, a, a kind of ability to reflect on his, his preemptive washing of us in baptism. And so we approach his table and we receive um, those things which he will give to us uh, on the cross. The way of Hebrew reckoning that very same day. Well, what else? We can think of the, we can think of the Lord's Supper. You can go to the Lord's Supper with the imagery of Isaiah in your mind. Isaiah chapter 6. Where he was standing before the Ark of the Covenant. And all of a sudden it was as if he saw the train of the Lord's robe and the smoke of the, of the uh, incense altar. And, but, and he could see the two uh, cherubim, the two seraphim. The names are used somewhat interchangeably on either side. And they're chanting back and forth. And God is in the middle. And remember, he falls on his face and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
And one of the seraphim goes over with tongs and grabs from the altar a coal and places it and says, your sin has been atoned for, places it on his lips. We can go to that same altar of God and perceive one greater than the seraphim, the Son of God himself coming and taking from the altar not a coal, but his own body, his own blood, and touching them to our lips and saying almost the identical words, your sin has been atoned for. And there we are crying out with the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. You can go to the end of Revelation, see it as the marriage feast of the Lamb. You come up to the same chancel, same chancel, and you see the marriage feast of the Lamb, Christ Jesus, the lover of his bride, the church. And you can see the glorious, unimaginable imagery of the the sevenfold torches, the sevenfold candelabra, which are the Holy Spirit. And as you're looking, those lights, those lights become the eyes of the Lamb who is behind with his seven horns, revealing the mysterious presence of the one who is seated behind him on the throne. Um, And the three all interchangeably one, and yet distinguishably three, uh, the Holy Trinity. And so... So this is, this is mystagogy. This is the ability to take into yourself the biblical imagery and the biblical themes and then see those things related and expressed in and through the gifts that God gives and come to, you'll never be bored again <laughs> in church, not even once. It's impossible to be bored. If you're bored, it's the deficiency of your own imagination or biblical lack of biblical knowledge that's the limiting factor um but so these are beautiful wonderful things and and in the imagery here you can think of yourself as walking through the wilderness and receiving the bread of life the bread of angels manna from heaven in the flesh and blood of of jesus you can picture yourself there with moses striking the rock with the soldiers striking christ's side the blood and water flowing forth bringing life to us, quenching our thirst, washing our sins away. All of this imagery is available to us. So I simply point that out because it's um, it's an essential way the early church thought. It's an essential way the early church fathers taught. And it's part of our rich heritage that we share as, as Western Catholics, as Lutherans, um, to imbibe this theology and do, let it dwell in us richly. And that takes us up then to the new materials on page, uh, well, page 752 in your Lutheran Study Bible. And this, of course, is chapter 9, verse 16. Um, any, any thoughts or reflections before we jump into the new material? Terry has one up, up here. Can we get you a microphone so the entire World Wide Web can benefit? No pressure, of course. No pressure. It'll just be recorded forever somewhere in Zuckerberg's metaverse. <laughs> No, I just have the imagery of the whole company of heaven being oh, another one. Another one. That's Absolutely. what I always with angels think about. and archangels and right. all the company of heaven. Yeah, um, there's a really crass way that pastors talk, and I, I reject it um, outright. So when they want to know how many people go to your church on a Sunday, they, this is. Can you believe how terribly they put this? I mean, it's hard to imagine. Don't become a clergy person. You have to have a a good stomach. Um, they say, they say, how many do you worship? If that isn't a Freudian slip, I don't know what is. Because that is exactly what they worship, the numbers of people in the pews. Um, no, the, yeah, so the appropriate answer to that is one. <laughs> one in three. <laughs> worship the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how many we worship. <laughs> and of course, once they've scoffed, which is ironic too, 
um, kind of disgustingly ironic that they would scoff that you would be out of bounds for saying something like that. Um, then they say, oh, no, no, okay, well, how many, you know, how many are there on a Sunday morning? You know what I'm saying. How many? I've never preached to less than thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads, never, never once in my life. Because there's angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven gathered there every single time I'm preaching. <laughs> so yeah, how many, how many are there on a Sunday morning? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> That's another better answer, isn't it? Than some silly average by which they're going to try to judge you. Um, yeah, like a mini, a miniature census that Satan inspired David to do the census, like a miniature census going on every time a pastor asks another pastor, how many people are in your pews? <laughs> just like what you were going through just like on the road to Emmaus. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell me about that. The on the Oh, oh yes, of course. Oh, you're saying like a whole other motif. Of course, you're sitting with the Lord and the disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And yeah, and he reveals himself in the breaking of the bread. Oh, that's kind of meta. There's different levels to that cuz he's revealing himself in the scriptures. As you said, that's kind of level one. He's doing this kind of mystagogy and teaching, revealing himself in the scriptures. And then, and then that, that more primary level, his disciples themselves realize this as, as, as they're uncertain as to who he is. Um, all of a sudden in the breaking of the bread, he disappears from their sight and they, re and reveals himself to them precisely in this breaking of the bread. So there's there's a disappearance and a revelation. And we can go to we can go to the Lord's Supper with that same kind of thought in our mind that we can't see him precisely because he's revealing himself to us. <laughs> Isn't that paradoxical? Um, in the breaking of the bread. This is he. And that there's an ongoing revelation there. You know, how do you come to know Jesus more and more? Keep going to the Lord's Supper over and over. Yeah, exactly. Where two or three are gathered in my name. Yeah, thank you for that. Good reflection. Good reflection. Okay, yeah, so, so I don't know if I even did justice to your, your comment or your question there, Terry, with my, my wild reflection and story, so sorry about that. Um, all right, verse 16. Now remember, this is um, you know this is in the context of uh, the people. Um, you can see you know you can see look at um, verse three back at verse three just so we get the context of this. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Okay, on the stairs, verse 4, the Levites stood, um, and then they name a number of the Levites, crying out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then they say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then begins this, um, this speech that we're in the midst of now. So I just kind of wanted to try to give you the concrete context so you didn't forget from last week. Then verse 16. Um, so this is this continued and ongoing speech. But they and our fathers, that is those who disobeyed in the wilderness, and our fathers acted presumptuously. Remember the psalm? 
in regard to presumptuous sins, and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. So look, they know the commandments. They act presumptuously. Well, God doesn't care. God will be merciful. Whatever. We'll do what we want. Um, and, and thus did not obey the commandments. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. And notice how this is not just the Exodus, but the ongoing acts of God throughout uh, the history of, of Israel. Here in this class, we've been through much of that as we, as we started in Genesis back in 2011. No, I'm just joking. I don't know, a couple years ago or something. Um, and here we are. So we've seen all of God's actions and the people's um, poor reactions. So that's being recounted here in a penitent sort of way. Again, verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Isn't that wonderful? And hasn't God demonstrated this thoroughly? Indeed, he has even now in, in reconstituting Jerusalem and the temple in such short time. You are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Oh, tell me about it. You know, slow to anger in the macro sense, when you look at it, it took him centuries upon centuries to finally say, okay, that's it, um, to his people. But then think about how slow to anger he has been with us, <laughs> personally, individually. You can look at your life and say, oh, I deserved such such great swift temporal punishment, but it wasn't there. Or I deserved so much more than that light chastisement which I received. We can see that he is indeed ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. That might even be the most impactful clause of all, because even as they did forsake him, he did not forsake them. So it's kind of that picture of Yahweh as the faithful husband and his people as the unfaithful bride. And though they are unfaithful, though she is unfaithful, he remains faithful. And even in, and indeed remains faithful to the point of rescuing his people from the hand miraculously, as we saw in both Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, rescuing them miraculously from this pagan power, the world's superpower, thoroughly pagan, thoroughly antithetical to Yahweh and his people, and yet God softens the hearts of the kings, the, um, the Babylonian kings, so that they release the people um, for this purpose and for this moment. God did not forsake them. This line echoes in the New Testament. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful great comfort there is. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Oh, you know, that, that was kind of part of the trickery. We've mentioned this before, so I won't do it at length, but um, note here how deceptive the golden calf was. It's not like, hey, let's worship, let's stop worshiping Yahweh and worship the golden cow. 
Um, no, Yahweh is the golden cow. The golden cow is Yahweh, and the golden cow let us out. Let's all worship the golden cow, which is Yahweh. You can see that it was a little more tricky than we might give them credit for. So don't be deceived. Um, that's kind of the message here. There's Satan and um, our sinful flesh are always doing tricky, twisted things. So yeah, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Now, how easy would it have been for God to be like, let's just start new. <laughs> let's just, let's just get a new piece or let's just grab one of them. We'll just rewind the clock. I got, I'm God. I've got all the time in the world, um, and beyond. And let's just, let's just grab a new Abraham and start over. Let's just grab a new Moses and start over. Or recall how God even said to Moses on one occasion, Hey, I'm just going to take you and let's start over. And remember Moses, very, very Jesus-like, refuses that and pleads for the sake of the people, mediates for them, and turns God's heart. And so, and this is, of course, very pleasing to God because while it's, while it's turning God's heart ostensibly, it's actually reflecting God's heart in his truest nature. It's one who does not forsake. Okay, so, um, yeah, we, we recollect God's mercies right along. You know, this is the God of the Old Testament. Remember the fire and brimstone God that nobody likes and how now in Jesus God's got it all figured out? I mean, what nonsense. What terrible theology. Um, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There are, it is the God who um, will not forsake us, though we forsake him. The God of who abounds in steadfast love. It's this one and the same God. Complete continuity. All right, um, latter half of 19. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Beautiful poetic expression. And of course, in the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, these are called theophanies. They have every reason to believe that this is... Um, that in the pillar is the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Son of God. He's in these pillars dwelling with his people. So there's a kind of typology we can gather from this as well, that he is our pillar of cloud, our pillar of fire. Leading, guiding, protecting, lighting, all of the above. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit capital S, Spirit, Holy Spirit, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. All right, very reminiscent of that verse we began with today, verse 15. But of course, here the addition of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being given. Verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples allotted to them in every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. 
All right, so as God leads the people out of the wilderness into the promised land, as God gives them military victories and gives them the land, they're inhabiting these beautiful cities and homes and abodes that have already been built for them. Can you imagine? I mean, it's literally like going from camping in the desert to walking in and just inheriting mansions on the hill. These are yours. So this is what's being recounted here is God's blessings to them. They're going to live in abodes that they did not build. A little reminiscent of that language that Jesus um, uses in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house or many rooms. Uh, the same kind of con concept that in, in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, however it may be, um, the abodes that we inherit are not abodes that we've built with our own hands or that we've labored to create. Um, it's all done for us by our Lord Jesus. So a little bit of an analogous thought there, if nothing else. Verse 23, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. Okay, of course, the, these are biblical times, so children are viewed as a blessing, contrary to our times where children are perceived as what gets in the way of your vacation. You can see how much we've become in these modern days lovers of ourselves. Where people conscientiously choose, I'm not going to have children because that's going to get in the way of my pleasure. And you're right, it will. <laughs> I mean, the secret, of course, is that God will give you even greater pleasure in and through your children. That's the secret. Um, but yeah, it's not because life isn't about being selfish. And children are a blessing. And they're a blessing to you individually, but they're a blessing to your entire people and to God's people. And so here, God gives them children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. In other words, you kept your promise. Your promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is fulfilled um, when you lead their progeny into the promised land. Verse 24, So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. So again, credit is given to this, not for the military prowess of the people, but God himself and his gracious hand. Likewise, verse 25, And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. It was like the, what do they call that? The turnkey house. When you're going to buy a new house, you turn the key, you open it, it's all ready to go. But this is even beyond. This is like if you opened it and the fridge was already stocked and everything else. Um, yeah, this is, uh, God God gave this land, gave them all, all these blessings into their hand. <coughs> uh, let's see. Verse 25 is what we just finished. No, uh, latter half of verse 25. So they ate and were filled <laughs> and became fat, <laughs> which back then was a good thing, not so much today, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Yeah, fat, fat back then used to be because you were rich. Fat today tends, unfortunately, to be because you're poor. 
Uh, we talked about that. Uh, Vicar and I were talking about that, reminiscing on that, because, you know, it's counterintuitive. You think well, if you're fat, it's because you've got all this money to eat. Quite the contrary. It's because you're eating the stuff that's the cheapest, quickest, fastest, easiest in our culture. And maybe you've got no choice. Um, it's kind of a privilege to eat healthy. <laughs> financial privilege. If you, because what does it presuppose? It presupposes you can afford to go shop at Whole Foods. It presupposes that you've got a grill or I saw a wrinkled nose. What's the better one? Not, not Whole Foods, but um, is there another one that's better? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but you know, you've got to, you, you, you got to afford the, the lean meat. That's more expensive, you know, and then you got to go to your your house or your apartment, you've got to cook it. You got to have pots and pans to cook it and pay the utility. So it's expensive to eat well. It's a privilege to eat well and to be thin in our culture. Um, usually the people who don't eat well can't afford to or working too hard or scurrying around too much. And so you put on weight. Anyway, interesting way that that has shifted um, from biblical times, where biblical times you were lean and mean, you didn't want to be. And here, um, when, you, uh, when you eat um, and become fat, that's a blessing. All right. Um, let's see. Yeah, they delighted themselves in your great goodness. What a fantastic line. I think that that's how we, sh we should celebrate like our Thanksgiving feast. Christmas feast coming up. Delighting ourselves in God's great goodness. And of course, then that has liturgical bearing too. The feast of his word that's given to us, gifts of his sacrament. All right, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. So what kind of theology is this? Look how good God is. Look how gracious God is. Look how patient. Look how he rewards the undeserving. Look how he gives impossible blessings and works impossible feats for his people. And his people respond in disobedience and rebellion. Yeah. Repaying good with evil. Mm. I think we all lament this to some degree because we sense that's our sinful nature. And when the sinful nature, um, you know, has its way, we find ourselves and, uh, you know, trampling over the innocence and kindness and goodness of God. When we recollect this, I think I said maybe on Sunday or a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember, that kind of the, the heart and the intensity of repentance is realizing who our sins are against. The, innocent, the true innocence and goodness and purity of God, and just how unimaginably evil it is to sin against one who is so perfectly good and undeserving of our sins. I mean, giving nothing but good and then to have us return evil. It really is, the, is at the root of our sorrow and our true contrition over sin that God works this in us. He reveals to us not only who we are, but who he is. And then I think what makes us love him all the more, if that were even possible is to see that with him there is forgiveness. And therefore we, we love him and love him in a way that it even takes on that form of godly and pious fear to honor one who is so good that he even, that he is good, we repay his goodness with evil, and still he repays that evil by working it for our good and forgiving our sins. You know, that's the, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. It's like that game you play with when you're kids, one hand on top of the other. And God's gracious hand is always on top in the end. It is a remarkable thing about him. Uh, 
All right, so again, um, verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back. Yeah, so much so that in certain periods of time, they lost it altogether. Can you imagine that? The church just like losing the Bible. <laughs> and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. I mean, again, here the prophets, the work of the prophets, the work of God. And they committed great blasphemies. Yeah, we saw that, how they turned to other gods and other worship, child sacrifice, prostitution, the like. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. Now this, if you recall, when we were studying Judges, is the language, the technical language that the Judges are called. We could just as easily name the book of Judges the book of Saviors, which I kind of rather like, um, because it also points to how each of these are types of the one, capital S, Savior, Jesus, who is to come. Okay, so in your great mercies, you gave them Saviors. We're in the period of the Judges now, since we're tracking through there. Remember the the books of Moses are being read, and so we're tracking through that history with our reflection of God's goodness and our repentance. That's what's going on. It's just a master class in prayer. It's a master class in how to use the scriptures. It's a master class in law and gospel. All of this provided for us right out of the Old Testament scriptures. It's unbelievable. Verse 28, But after they had rest, ha! They rebelled against you, you punished them, they cried out, you saved them, you gave them rest. No sooner they had rest, they did evil again before you. <laughs> this is the pattern. After they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. There you go again. So that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned, or excuse me, when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Which again, I think is a beautiful statement. You know, there's that psalm, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. It's not like call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll answer you if you have a proven track record of really meaning it. You know, when you're saying, no, God's promise is unequivocal. You know, and sometimes I think preachers too, we sometimes get a little wound too tight and we'll say things rather idiotic. Um, you know, like, don't just call out to God when you're in need. God isn't a vending machine. And Okay, well, true enough, he's not a vending machine, but he does say, call out to me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. He doesn't say, if, you know, hey, don't treat me this way. Or No, look, if you're desperate and desperate enough to cry out to him, he would have you cry out to him and he will answer you and answer you in your own best interest. And so we can be guaranteed of his fatherly care in that respect. And you know, this is, um, this is ap apropos, this reflection is apropos of this text because, you know, again, when they turned and cried, you heard them. You didn't say, hey, what happened? You cried to me before and I answered, learn your lesson. No. When they turned, you answered. And many times you delivered them according to your mercy. So many times they turned and you answered and they turned away and you gave them over and then they cried out, and you answered, and so it, so it goes. All this, I think, to show us that God is our true heavenly Father, and he wants what's best for us. He's not going to be manipulated. He's not going to be deceived. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't mistake that for um, him being some kind of, I mean, he's more tender and more compassionate than our earthly parents could be. Um, 
and more long-suffering. All right, verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Yeah, I, I mean, think about the promise attached to the fourth commandment. Honor your father and mother and it will go well with you and you will live long in the land. Um, whoever does them will live by them. Um, it's a general truth. It's a general truth. And, um, of course, that's what's going on here. Um, so if you don't do them, then you're not going to live, but by them you're going to be condemned and put to death. And um, thus that's what they deserved on account of their wickedness. Of course, God is super abundantly gracious to them over and over, just as he is to us. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. I mean, again, some people want to overstate the difference between the Old and New Testament and act like the new, like the Holy Spirit shows up for the first time at Pentecost or something like this. I mean, just, yeah, you have to like not read the Old Testament to get that. The Holy Spirit's everywhere. Um, all thoroughgoing through the Old and New Testaments. We'll be talking about the Holy Spirit and the Incarnation. Quick commercial for next Wednesday. Advent Midweek Vespers. The Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary. All right, many years you bore with them and warned them by your Spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. I mean, isn't this... Where else do you find in the scriptures this kind of meditation on God's grace? This is why we should never forget about Nehemiah. This section alone is just incredible. I mean, all of verse 9, how can you beat it? It reminds me a little bit, too, of um, Stephen's sermon uh, before he's martyred. Yeah, just a little bit where he's recounting the history of God's people and God's goodness to them. Gracious and merciful God. Verse 32, Now therefore... Our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Okay, so again, what is, what is at work here? Crying out for mercy. Verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. Okay, so everything we've suffered in the short term, going all the way back, you have been righteous in it. You've been, you've been just. You've been good. We, we, we see and understand that We've deserved what you gave and more. You've been even-handed and even gentle in how you've disciplined us. That's the sentiment here being expressed. You know, in verse 32, there's this um, 
Now therefore God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant, that is God's faithfulness, and his steadfast love for us. I mean, at a, at a root, I think this steadfast love, this cassette, is like familial love, like flesh and blood love. The kind of love that like doesn't go away even if you've really offended each other. It's still kind of there. Even when you're like not on speaking terms, it's still kind of there. Um, So uh, just a remembrance of who God is and a reminder of uh, to God of who God is. <laughs> uh, let uh, not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. In other words, have mercy. It may seem little to you. It's heavy to us. We are repentant. And then, and then not that we're accusing you. You know, verse 33. You've been righteous in all that has come upon us. Righteous so often has the connotation of gracious, too, in the Old Testament. You have been, see how this reads, you have been gracious in all that has come upon us. Even in the punishments we've received from your hand, we see the marks of your restraint and grace. Oh, I think that's right. Oh, it's not, it's not wrong. Let's at least put it that way. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. <sighs> there are lines in the Bible that sum up everything. The entire thing. Just there are, there are more than a few lines in the Bible. And they all have, you know, it's like looking at a diamond and there's different facets. All the same diamond. It's a different angle. Different colors, different features maybe. Shining for. But this is one. This is one. This is the summary of our entire age. And it is this, it is from, from Alpha to Omega, from Genesis to Revelation. The summary of the scriptures, the summary of the age, the summary of the human race, the summary of each one of us individually. You, Lord, have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. We are saved not because of our goodness or merit, but because of your faithfulness, because of your mercy. And then how does this, how does this all come? I mean, like, like, okay, so this is all words, but where does this become solid and concrete and irrefutable and enfleshed? <laughs> On the cross of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. There's the rubber hitting the road and there's the true manifestation of who God is, that even as we are unfaithful, he is faithful. And even as we are wicked, he uses that very wickedness for our good. He won't have it be otherwise. He gives himself and his own life for us and for our salvation. The self-sacrifice of God on behalf of his people. So all of this, all of this portends to the cross and is manifest and enfleshed in our Savior laying down his own life for us. You have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Now this is quite the statement. Our princes, our priests, our fathers, you know, who are the princes? The fathers of the left-hand kingdom, who are priests. The fathers of the right-hand kingdom, who are fathers <laughs> of the estate, of family. 
the heads. So you have the three estates listed here, the state of the state, the state of the church, the state of the family, the three estates, the two kingdoms, complete failure of all. And the, and the rhetoric here functions fascinatingly because who are our fathers but the very best of us? So if the very best of us have failed, you know, it's not this kind of leader bashing that we're so into today. Um, it's quite the opposite. It's like the very best of us, the fathers of us, did not do this. Um, how much, how much more did the children fail? That's the essence and rhetoric of this. So our best of the best. You know, that's kind of the shock of Jesus addressing Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the best of the best. He's the, he's the peak and epitome of, um, of, of the Hebrew faithful. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, like St. Paul says of himself. And in fact, not only is he a Pharisee of the Pharisees, but he's proven himself to be, objectively speaking, much more righteous than the other Pharisees who have already condemned Jesus outright over jealousy and misunderstanding his mercy to sinners. Um, Nicodemus is more righteous than that. Nicodemus says, good teacher, I know that we know that what you've done comes from God. No one can do the things you've done unless they're... I mean, look at Nicodemus. He is the best of the best. Nicodemus is in terms of just straight up fallen world morality, like Navy SEAL Team 6 team leader. <laughs> you know, that's, that's Nicodemus. And yet, what, is, what does Jesus say to him? You must be born again, just right out of the gate. Boom! Just, hey, you're not even, you're not, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom of God. I'm sorry. The best of the best of this fallen world isn't even in the same dimension. You have to be born again of water and the spirit. In effect, you have to become in utero and a suckling and grow up into maturity of this new reality, this new sonship that I've come to give before you'll be able to perceive anything rightly before you'll be able to see the kingdom, enter the kingdom. You know, it's stunning. It's stunning. So you get these, um, you get these moments in the scriptures where um, you, re you realize that, um, you know, as Isaiah says, even our good deeds are as filthy rags. There is no merit or worthiness in humanity as such. And it's not the failure of the worst of the worst, which is so often where our minds gravitate towards, the failure of the best of the best that illustrate... Um, not only our fallen state, but God's grace in the most accurate way. All right, so verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. You gave them every advantage. You know, there's a, a little bit here going on of the, um, remember Adam and Eve in paradise with every possible advantage, and they fall. And here the people, true fruit of Adam and Eve, every possible advantage, and they fall. When our Lord Jesus faces the tempter, he's going to have every possible disadvantage. Everyone and everything hostile to him, not in a garden, not in a kingdom of his own, but out in a wilderness, not well fed, but having fasted for 40 days, surrounded, I think it's Mark who says, surrounded by wild beasts. I mean, you get this picture like there's jackals and I don't know what else they had in the wilderness, but like nasty 
animals ready to devour him at any at any stage, and there he is, alone, uh, facing facing the devil with all of the all of the disadvantages, and yet he triumphant where Adam failed. He triumphant as the true Israel, as Isaiah says, where this Israel failed. So we can see all of those themes work themselves out here too. God, they had every advantage, and yet they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. And then verse 36, Behold, we are slaves this day, and the land that you gave to our fathers. Oh, what? There is so much profundity and irony in this. Because how did they come into this land? God removed them from slavery, brought them into the land, and their works were so evil that slavery then took them in the land. <laughs> so they're lamenting this. They're lamenting this. And I can't help but think that in this prayer, they're conscious of this kind of irony. God took them out of slavery only to have them work themselves back into it. And of course, a type, a very right field for the type of sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, Jesus says. And that's the deeper spiritual reality of this. It takes the Son to set us free. We cannot free ourselves. All right, I think that takes us to verse 37. And its rich yield, that is the fruit of the land that you've given us, its rich yield, these blessings that you intended for us because of our wickedness, because of our own foolish decisions and the things we've brought upon ourselves, the rich yield of this land goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. I don't want to reflect on that relative to our own circumstances here in America, where we too seem to be willingly handing over our freedoms, willingly becoming impoverished for a set of elite who continually prosper over us. And, and one can't help but wonder if we aren't in need of deep repentance, that God might um, remove from us these temporal banes, they rule over our bodies, over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Okay, verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. All right, so this is a reinstantiation of the original covenant. This is a massive corporate um, act of repentance. We're in the midst of this service. We, they recognize what God has done in re-establishing the temple and Jerusalem. There's a there's almost a type of the resurrection here. The temple and Jerusalem have been raised from the dead. Um, and now we're going to have a, a list of the people who sealed the covenant. But that's probably a good place for us to break. I know we're about four minutes early, uh, but we'll uh, we'll pause here for the week. And then next week we'll be we'll be skipping over a whole bunch of na uh, names, um, and we will be close, you know, in the next week or two, possibly before. Oh no, maybe more, two or three weeks, possibly right after Christmas, uh, just depending on how much skipping around there is. 
we will uh, draw draw Nehemiah to a close, and then we'll be um, so have in the back of your minds is what you might want to study next. I think as best as I can tell, not one hundred percent confident in this, but as we've marched from Genesis all the way through Nehemiah, we've we've kind of hit in a linear sense. Of course, there's chronicles and numbers and various parallel texts with more information, but in a general, simple, linear sense. We've kind of uh, dead-ended in terms of the narrative um, right up against what will be the intertestamental period. And obviously, you can plug the minor prophets into this timeline, and, and that's why they come later in the Old Testament. Um, but then we hit the intertestamental period, and then we hit the coming of our Lord Jesus. So um, we can pivot and do something else of a different genre in the, uh, in the Old Testament here. Or, once upon a time, we used to be in the New Testament. We could always return to that. Be thinking about that. Let me know. All right. The Lord be with you.